the book of Proverbs and in the New Testament, really the rest of Scripture. So I um, just want to open it up to you. Um, what in specific, in particular, have we talked about so far? Anything um, you remember? What we said so far in our study? Good, excellent. That's the goal. That's the main aim of, of wisdom. It's not just for having a nice life. Uh, it's not for just having good relationships. It, it does all those things, but it's primarily for uh, living a life pleasing to the Lord, a life of righteousness that lines up to His, his law. Um, good. What else have we said so far in our in our study about righteousness? What did we talk about last week? Remember? Here. Last week we sort of talked about, uh, we moved from talking about what righteousness is and who the righteous are, to really asking the question, are righteous works essential? Are they imperative? Or are they just extra? Are they just icing on the cake? Um, are they essential for eternal life? Do we have to do righteous works? Uh, will there be a judgment according to works is another way we... We asked it, and we went to a number of passages, both in Proverbs and in the New Testament, and we saw that the Bible clearly states that there is indeed a judgment according to works. They're essential. They're not extra. Um, works are of massive importance because they will indeed be judged. They play a significant role in determining one's destiny, whether eternal life or eternal death. We saw the New Testament says those whose lives are characterized by wickedness will not inherit the kingdom. And those whose lives, only those whose lives are characterized by righteousness will inherit the kingdom. But that's not how we ended. We said we can't end there because it's imperative to determine what kind of role works will play. Um, if you get this wrong, if you get this backwards, you get the gospel wrong. Uh, you get the gospel mixed up, and, uh, and it's, it's imperative we get this um, correct. It's an important doctrine, but we can't get it backwards. Um, we saw that righteous works are essential for eternal life, not because they add anything to Christ's finished work. Not because they add anything to our justified status. But righteous works are imperative, essential for the Christian life, because they are the inevitable evidence that we have been united to Christ, that we have genuine faith, that we have genuine love for Christ. We said that they are they are not root, but they are what? They are root fruit. They're not our foundation, but they're the evidence that the foundation is there. Um, true faith produces true Fruit And where fruit, genuine righteous works are absent, it's evidence, there's no true faith there either. So, that's what we talked about last week, um, and I want to spend a little more time on it this week, uh, just because of how important it, it is uh, in Proverbs and the rest, of, the rest of the Bible. But before we go there, I just want to connect us back to Proverbs and remind us why we are going where we are, why we are going my goal in this little mini-series is really to exhort us, to exhort myself, 
um, not to be casual about bearing fruit. Not to be casual with the book of Proverbs. It's easy to do. I find myself doing it all the time. Um, I don't want to approach the book of Proverbs casually, as though it's just full of a bunch of nice sayings that you can hang on your refrigerator. Uh, if you do that, it's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. But it, it's more than that. It's more than just these, these cute little sayings that are just some good suggestions, some good advice for life. Um, my, my goal next week is to really look at the book of Proverbs and see how authoritative it is. It's not just some suggestions. It is, it is authoritative for our lives, just like the rest of Scripture. And so my goal in this series is to exhort us not to be casual about Proverbs, not to be casual about bearing righteous fruit, doing righteous works in our lives. It's important. Um, so that's what we're after. So this week, I just want to ask one question that's on your outline, and that is, why ought we to devote our lives to righteousness? Why should we not be casual? Why should we be eager? Why should we be devoted to this goal? What are some motivations that the scriptures give us for bearing righteous fruit? Why ought we take it seriously? to put the virtues that Proverbs commends into practice. So that, that's my goal this morning, uh, to talk to you about. Question. Yes. How does, how does the, the righteousness we're talking about mm -hmm. in terms of, of the fruit, Good. how does that relate to imputed righteousness? Yes. In other words, the righteous fruit we bear does not make us righteous. Does it doesn't. It? it doesn't add even a, a, a minuscule to our standing it before Christ. It doesn't make us righteous. It doesn't make us righteous. The righteousness we have is, is imputed. Right? That's right. Excellent. Yes, thank you. That, that is helpful. And so the imputed righteousness of Christ will be the what? Will be the root. That is our standing before God. My, even my sanctification, even the spirit-wrought fruit in my life, it doesn't add one iota to my standing before God. It doesn't add one iota to my acceptance before God. That is root. That root is what? It is Christ. It is what? It comes through faith. Um, we talked in our small group um, this past Wednesday discussing Stephen's message that even the best work that I've done, even the best work I've done in the spirit, it's genuine fruit. It's genuine righteousness. But it's so still tainted by my flesh and corrupt. And it's produced by the Spirit. It is nothing I can rely on. And we're going to hammer that away here at the end. But that's a helpful distinction. Imputed righteousness is what we get in faith alone. That's my standing before God. That's the only thing I rest in. We don't rest in even what the Spirit is producing in us. Even the righteous works we're doing. Even though it is genuine righteousness in a sense. The Spirit's producing it. But it's not my standing. It's not what I rest in for confidence before God. It's Christ alone. So thank you. That's... Excellent. And, uh, and I, at the end of the series, I don't want there to be any confusion before that um, about that. Um, my only point is that that's foundation, that's root. But you have to have fruit to testify that imputed righteousness has taken place. Um, so thank you. Very good. Very good. So look at your outline. Why should we be devoted? Why should we be eager? Why should we pursue bearing righteous fruit? First point is because righteous fruit is essential for the final judgment. And this is what we said last week. Uh, I just want to flesh it out a little bit more. And I don't want to make it bigger than the New Testament makes it. Um, 
But at the same time, the New Testament makes a very big deal about this. I mean, it's, it's like in every book. I mean, it's amazing when you when you do a survey. Um, when the scriptures speak of this doctrine, why does it bring it up? Why do the authors talk about this doctrine of the judgment of works at the final judgment? Um, it's usually with the aim of waking us up to be serious about our about our walk, to strive for obedience. It, it's meant to wake us up from being casual, from just cruising through life as nominal professors who are not actively bearing fruit. That's why the scriptures will bring it up over and over, and we'll go to a number of passages to, to see it. And again, why is it important? Why will it be judged the final judgment? It's not going to be our foundation. It's not going to be what we're standing on for acceptance with God. It doesn't earn anything from God. But it's fruit that testifies that something genuine has taken place in us. So, go to Romans chapter 2. On your outline, you can see there's there's five different reasons why it will be essential for the final judgment. And it's, first thing is because it evidences the presence of the Holy Spirit. Righteous works evidence the presence of the Holy Spirit. We looked at Romans 2 last week, and uh, <laughs> we could spend many weeks on this chapter. It's Act, uh, but I just want to go really quick through it, and we have a lot to uh, a lot to talk about this morning. Romans chapter two, look at verse six. Paul says, "He, it's God, will render to each one according to his works. To those who, by patience and well doing, seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness." There will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first, and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first, and also the Greek, for God shows no partiality. So let me just make a few points here on this passage. What's going on here? Um... First thing I want to point out is that Paul is here, he is going after Jewish reliance on their possession of the law. Um, chapter 1, he's gone after the Gentiles, says you're under the condemnation because you are suppressing the truth. And then in chapter 2, he goes after the Jews and saying you're not much better off. And at that time, the Jews would found their confidence that we possess God's law, we have his word, we have circumcision, we are God's people. And Paul's telling them that simply possessing Torah is of no value. Even the Gentiles possess God's law written on their conscience. Look at verses 14 to 16. It talks about that they by nature know what the law requires. And Paul's point is that that doesn't help them at all. But rather in the judgment that their conflicting thoughts will accuse them, and even excuse them for their occasional obedience that they had, when according to my gospel, God judges. Um, rather, it's not those who have the law, but it's those who do the law who will be justified. Look at verse 13. It's not the hearers of the law but who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law will be justified. Now, it's obvious Paul is not talking about justification by works. Foundation is what I do. It's not what he's talking about. Why? Because in just a few verses later in chapter 3, he says, By works of the law, no man will what? No man will be justified. justified. Alright? One of the principles of hermeneutics is that 
you recognize the author isn't stupid. He knows what he's just written ten verses previous, right? So, obviously, Paul's not writing a, a, a contradiction here. What's he doing? Rather, I think what we need to do is identify these people in verses 7 and 10 and 13 as the same people at the end of the chapter. Look at verse 25. Paul identifies who these people are who are doing these good works. Verse 25, Paul says, For circumcision is indeed of value if you obey the law, but if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised, a Gentile, keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision, a true Jew? Then he who is physically uncircumcised, a Gentile, but keeps the law, will condemn you who have the written code in circumcision, but break the law. And here's his point, verse 28. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is inward. It's one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not by the Lord. His praise is not from man, but from God. In other words, being a Jew merely in the flesh and just hearing the law won't do you any good. Rather, it's those who have a circumcision of the heart. New covenant work. They've been born again. They possess the spirit. And from that, what comes? From that comes the keeping of the law. From the circumcision of the heart, from the true indwelling of the spirit, that is where obedience comes from. That's what Paul's talking about. Who are those who keep the law? It's those who have the spirit. So you're saying, okay, so... It still works. Well, no. Where does the Spirit come from? How do you get the Spirit in your life? Paul says over and over, the Spirit comes how? By faith. Faith in Christ. Faith in Christ alone justifies you, gives you the Spirit, and then becoming part of the new covenant. Having the Spirit produces fruit in your life, and it testifies that you're a true Jew, that you're a person who has genuine circumcision of the heart. That is what's going to be examined on the day of judgment. It's not going to be your foundation. It's going to be evidence the Spirit has been in your life at work. So I think that's what Paul is talking about here in Romans 2. It evidences the presence of the Spirit. Number two, um, righteous fruit evidences the new birth. Look over at 1 John chapter, chapter 2. This is basically the same thing that we saw in Romans 2, um, just different terminology. It evidences the new birth. 1 John chapter, chapter 2, verse 28. 1 John 2, 28. He says, And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, as Christ returned, the judgment, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness is born of him. We'll have confidence to stand in the day when Christ returns if we have fruit, fruit of righteousness. Why? It's not that fruit makes us righteous. It's not the foundation. But what does it do? It testifies that we have been born him. Look down at chapter 3, verse 7. It says, Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness 
is righteous as he is righteous. Verse 10. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God. Nor is the one who does not love his brother. So notice how John puts it. It's not simply not doing wrong. But he says if your life is not marked by the fruit of righteousness, positive righteousness, you're not of God, you're of the devil. Righteous fruit evidence is the new birth. And again, it's not perfection. We spent a whole lesson on who are these righteous. They're not the perfect. But they're those who repent of sin and who seek to bring their lives in line with God's law and who love him and are growing in him. Number three, righteous fruit evidence is saving faith. Um, you can go to James. We won't do that. You know it. Um, you've heard it many times. James 2. Genuine faith does what? It works. It produces fruit. Righteous fruit evidence is genuine faith. Number four. Righteous fruit evidence is our union with Christ. Um, you can go to Philippians chapter 1 verses 9 through 11. Paul prays for these believers that they will have confidence in the day of Christ to stand pure and blameless having a life filled with righteous fruit. And then Paul says where that righteous fruit comes from. It comes from being in union with Christ. It testifies to them. And finally, number five, righteous fruit evidence is a love for Christ. Um, this is what I want to uh, emphasize here at the end of this first point. Go to Matthew chapter 25. Matthew 25.31. You know this parable, but listen to it in light of what we have been talking about. Matthew 25.31. When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He'll sit on His glorious throne. Before Him will be gathered all the nations, and He will separate people one from another as the shepherd separates sheep. From the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from before the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? Or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you? Or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And then the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. Then he'll say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. I was naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry, or thirsty, or a stranger, or naked, or sick, or in prison? Did not minister to you. 
Then he will answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Righteous fruit evidences a love for Christ. And it's made manifest in the way one treats Christ's brothers. But it goes beyond that. Your love or hatred for Christ is evidenced by the way you treat the least of Christ's brothers. Believers. People who are in his family. How do you treat the least believer? Evidences. Do you love Christ? Those who are condemned in verses 41 through 46 sort of reject the notion. They say, we would never have done that to you, Jesus. We never saw you like that. But the point is that they don't love or care for Christ as they don't love or care for Christ's people. Christ identifies with the least of his disciples. And the way we demonstrate our love for Christ is by our sacrificial love to the brothers. That's how it is demonstrated. This alone proves that we love Christ. It's not what we think we would do if Christ was before us, but it's what we actually do when Christ is before us in our brothers. That's what matters. Righteous fruit, especially love. Notice the connection. In Proverbs, we said righteousness is inseparable from love. Same thing here. Righteous fruit, especially love for believers, evidences your love for Christ. That's what's going to be examined at the final judgment. Did you love Jesus? Do you love his people? Do you love the least of these, my brothers? Is your life marked by sacrificial love for the brethren? Righteous fruit, especially love for brethren, evidences the love for Christ. So that's our first point. I encourage you to go to John chapter 14, chapter 13, the exact same point over and over. So that's our first point. Why we must bear righteous why we must pursue bearing righteous fruit. Because it's essential for the final judgment. Not because it adds anything. Not because it's root. Not because it's foundational. But because it evidences the Holy Spirit's in us. It evidences a new birth. Evidences our faith. Evidences our union with Christ. Evidences our love for Christ. Don't be content with a faith that isn't persevering in these things, isn't growing in these things, isn't striving for these things. These truths are meant to wake us up constantly. I need to be about this. I need to be pursuing this. Not to rest in. My faith needs to be active. My love for Christ needs to be active. Because in that way, it demonstrates it's true. So let's go on here um, to some of the next points. I want to finish this lesson. Number two, why ought we pursue righteousness it's because we are commanded to pursue it it's not an option where we're not to it's one of the paradoxes of the christian's life we just talked about the spirits in us producing righteous works that doesn't mean we just sort of sit back and, and watch the, tr- the the fruit pop out we just let the spirit work and say okay ready go it's not how it works the spirit is working he is the decisive reason for producing fruit and yet we're to be working Work out your salvation, fear and trembling, because God is not working to will and to work for his good pleasure. God is working. Therefore, we must strive. We must work. 
Let me give you some passages. So if you guys could read this, who can get Matthew chapter 6, verse 32? Um, raise your hand quick. All right, Paul. Uh, Hebrews chapter 12, 14 to 15. All right, voices. 1 Timothy 6, 11. Talk. And then 2 Timothy 2, 22. Paul. All right, excellent. Very good. All right, um, just listen to these. How the New Testament calls us to pursue these things. All right, Paul. For the idolaters eagerly seek all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. Uh, in the next verse, I'm sorry. Uh, yeah. But seek first okay. the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be provided for you. Good. Seek first the kingdom, and then I think this next little phrase is often overlooked. And what? And his righteousness. Well, what's that? That's all the values Jesus has just outlined in the Sermon on the Mount. How do you seek the kingdom? One of the ways you seek the kingdom is seeking his righteousness in your life first, and in the lives of those around you. Seek his righteousness. Seek it. Seek it. The world is doing what? They're seeking money. They're seeking food. They're seeking clothes. With that same zeal that the world seeks these things, seek righteousness. That's what Jesus Hebrews 12, 14 to 15. exactly what we're talking about. Strive for it. 1 Timothy 6.11 Pursue these things. 2 Timothy 2.22 Flee also youthful lusts, but pursue righteousness, faith, love, peace with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. Pursue Pursue it actively, eagerly. And note again, the connection to love. Man, it's so connected. So connected. So why should we pursue and devote our lives to righteous living, righteous works? We're commanded to. It's not an option. We don't just sit and wait for the Spirit to zap us with the lightning bolt. He's working. But we get to work actively, putting these things into practice. Number three, we ought to devote our lives to righteous living because we were saved for this. Um, there's a number of reasons why we were saved, why Jesus died for us, but this is one of the main things for which we were saved. Look at 1 Peter, Peter chapter 2. It's why God saved us. This is why he died for us. 1 Peter chapter 2, 24. He himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree. Why? That we might Die to sin and live to what? Righteousness. Jesus didn't just die, die for us to forgive us. He did. He didn't just die for us in order to give us eternal life. He did. But he died for us. Why? So that we would be free from sin and have lives devoted to what? Righteousness. That's why we were saved. Calvin said that the goal of God's work in us is to bring our lives into harmony and agreement with his own righteousness. And so to manifest to ourselves and to others our identity as his adopted children. That's why we were saved. Not just so that we'd be forgiven. That's part. 
He saved us so that we would be free from sin, have lives devoted to his end. Yeah. I heard Dr. Fleece, who was then president of Columbia uh, Bible College years ago, speak on the verse, Thou uh, shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. And he said he'll have students come into his office and he'll ask them, what did Jesus come to save you from? And almost invariably they'll say, from hell. He said, no, he didn't. That's a fringe benefit. He said he came to save you from sin. And the question is, are you saved from sin? That's the question. Yeah, that's excellent. Excellent. Yeah. And, and we could go to Romans 6. You, you're a slave to sin. You're, you're saved. What are you free? You're made a slave of what? Righteousness. You're made a slave of Christ, no longer a slave of sin. It's excellent. Number four, why ought we to devote our lives to righteous living? It's because it's the only reasonable, only fitting response. Romans 12, you know this verse, you, you've memorized this verse. Let me read it to you. Romans chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore, I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. I think a better translation, it might be in your footnote, it is your reasonable service. I think the idea is it's the only reasonable response. It's the only response that makes sense. In light of the mercy of God, Paul says, therefore, because of the mercy of God, Everything he said in Romans is mercy. Everything we've experienced is mercy. Because of that, the only reasonable response is to offer our bodies as a sacrifice. Well, how do you do that? You do it by pursuing a life of holiness. It's acceptable to God. That's the only reasonable response. Love, so amazing, so divine, demands life, soul, and all. It's the only reasonable. It's the only fitting response to such grace that we receive. Number five, why ought we devote our lives to righteous living? It's because of the worthiness of Christ. He's worthy. And this is the capstone. This is the ultimate reason. It's true. It's the way our faith is made evident. It's true that we're commanded to it. It's true this is the reason we were saved. It's true that's the only reasonable response. But really, this is the capstone. It's because Christ He's worthy. He is the ultimate reason. He's worthy of lives devoted to him. He's worthy of lives submitted to him. Paul talks in Colossians, Paul preached it, to walk in a manner worthy of your call, worthy of Christ. In 1 Thessalonians, Paul says, we charge you to walk in a manner worthy of God, in a manner that accords with the worthiness of Christ, what he deserves, what he ought to get. Because of all that he's done, he's worthy of lives that are devoted to him. Worthy of lives that die to self and submit to him. He's worthy. Because of all that he has done, because of who he is, there's no other response. Why should we pursue righteousness? Why should it not just be something casual? Why should we be eager about the book of Proverbs? It's because it's not optional. It evidences the true nature of our heart. It's not optional. It is what we are saved for. It's what we are commanded to go after. Christ is worthy. It's the only reasonable response. So let me just encourage you this morning. Encourage me this morning. 
pursue eagerly, actively. Don't be passive. As we come to Proverbs, we're going to talk about ethics. We're going to talk about morals. We've got to get the right place. That's why we're spending five weeks on righteousness. They don't add a thing to our status before God. We don't do it to earn anything from God. They're important. They're essential. Why? It's what they testify. True faith. True fear of the Lord and Proverbs works. And it produces things. And here's all the other reasons. This is what we should be about. So, we got a couple minutes. Look at the back of your outline. Let me give you a few closing implications to chew on this week. Sort of bring everything to, together. Number one, these motivations that we talked about are what make our pursuit of righteousness Christian and pleasing to God. It's what makes us not like Pharisees. It's what makes us not like hypocrites. These motivations. Next week, I'm going to try to talk a little bit about what is false righteousness, what is Phariseeism. How does that contrast with what we're talking about now? But Paul said in Romans 7, 6, we obey in the newness of the Spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. We approach God's law now not with the heart of stone, which perverts God's law, which uses it as a platform to exalt ourselves, or use it as a ladder to earn favor with God. That's not how we approach God's law now. We approach it now in the newness of the Spirit, in a heart that loves Christ, that trusts Christ, and that expresses its devotion to Christ based upon all the things that we've talked about. So all these motivations are what make our pursuit of righteousness Christian and not like Number two, never grow content. I remember John Piper wrote in his, one of his books about a holy discontentment. We should be content about the things that we have, but we should never be content about our progress and holiness. And all the reasons we mentioned this morning are, 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 are why. We can never stop fighting. We can stop fighting and striving as soon as we've obtained perfection. And that's not going to happen in this life. But in this life, we're not going to aim for anything less than perfection. That, that is our aim. That's what we're after. And it's coming one day um, after, after we die. So be diligent. Be diligent about examining every thought, every emotion, every action. We are just talking about this yesterday at Owen. Oh, how important it is just to be careful in every aspect of your life because of all the motivations we just talked about this morning. Number three. Don't let the presence of sin or the smallness of your fruit cause you to despair. That's the last thing I want to happen from our series. Rather, look to Christ for mercy afresh. And then put forth a renewed zeal for holiness by His Spirit. By studying all these things, I'm convicted. I do not love the brothers like I should. I don't have fruit like I should. It's small. How should I respond? I can only respond in one way, and it's repent. Lord, have mercy, forgive me. Go back to the cross. Trust Christ as your foundation. And then go to these motivations and get to work actively seeking love to the brothers. I only have one hope. It's Christ alone. Exactly what Stephen preached last Sunday. It's my only hope for mercy before God. Be merciful to me as And then put the faith into practice. Number four. Don't ignore actual fruit that God has produced in your life. I don't want us to be ignorant of sin patterns, but at the same time, I don't want us to ignore 
actual fruit that God has done in your life. If you're a true believer, you have genuine fruit. You shouldn't ignore that. You shouldn't rely on it. We shouldn't ignore it. It should be an encouragement. Yeah, it, I, it's not a lie, but it's there. I see it. Be encouraged. And let that encourage you, drive you to produce to produce more. Be encouraged of what it testifies to, what it means. It's real. And number five, remember these three things about your righteous deeds. Number one, they're spirit wrought. They can't be boasted in. Any good we have, it's not because of me, it's because of the spirit. I can't boast in anything. B, they are far from perfect. Even the best thing I've done in this spirit only earns condemnation if that is what I rely on. And C, never put God into debt by your righteous deeds because they are expressions of our love and faith to Him. That is the place of righteous works in the Christian life. It requires balance, it requires care. And it's important. You can see in the New Testament, the New Testament authors thought it was important. It's over and over and over again they talk about how imperative it is. And we must strive to have the proper place for it and then strive after it following. Any questions? Comments? I hope it's clear. I hope it's confusing. If you have questions, uh, let me know. Um, I think next week... Um, we will try to wrap this uh, series up on it and, uh, and then prepare for Proverbs. And if you have any specifics you would like us to talk about, let me know. Any specific topics in Proverbs you'd like us to talk about, let me know. And uh, we'll try to tackle it. But I want this to be helpful. And um, pray that it is. So, comments? Sad remarks? Just, yeah. I was just thinking, even the repentance is a fruit. Yes. Like, so, um, the fact that repenting over these things is something to be, like you said, identified as fruit. Yes. Amen. Excellent. Excellent. Yep. The uh, dead man doesn't repent. Right. Beautiful. Yeah. Just one other quick thing. Uh, the Matthew 25 passage about you know, mm-hmm. providing food, drink, yes. clothing, and all that. Uh, you will hear, uh, I'll say liberals, uh, people apart from Christianity that do those things. Sure. And they do have charities and things yep. that they do. But the thing is that it makes sense with what you're saying. That's their root, yep. not just the fruit. It's Good. their root of righteousness. Uh, you know, they'll say, well, I've done those righteous yep. deeds. I've done, done things like that. I've clothed and, and all that. But, uh, but it's based on, uh, you know, Excellent. it's not based on Christ. They don't have Christ, so that's the, that has to be their foundation. I don't have anything yeah. else. Good. And two other things. They don't do it towards true believers. That's what Christ said. Yeah, yeah. Do good to all men, especially the house of the faith. And First John also uh, really points out, maybe we'll get to that next week, uh, but how that falls short of even true love if you don't do it in the love of God. So, good. Very cool. Excellent. It says, right. it says a cup of cold water in the name of Christ. Yeah. They get yeah. a lot of cold cups of cold water. Yeah. yeah. But not, not for his glory. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Good. Amen. Amen. All right. Let me pray.